BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher. Thanks again for coming to the James Altucher Show. I'm very excited about this guest, and I um, I hope you know who he is. His name's Seth Gold, basically the star of the show Hardcore Pawn, uh, along with his father, Les, and his sister, Ashley. And Hardcore Pawn has 3 million viewers a week. It's on the channel True TV. It's one of the most, I think they're in their eighth season. It's one of the most popular cable shows ever. I mean, I think there's only one or two shows that have, been, have run for more seasons uh, in the history of cable. And uh, I'm excited to talk to him because I want to learn about not only the pawn shop business, which is a huge sector of the economy. Like there's a few public pawn shop companies. And I always think these are great investments because you'll see from me talking to Seth, it's really hard to lose money in this business. And also the one thing that you learn in the pawn shop business is how to negotiate. And Seth gives his tips on negotiating. So I use these tips to educate my kids. So I hope you listen to this show and, and, and learn and uh, enjoy. Seth, thanks for joining me on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And Seth, Hardcore Pawn, what are you up to now? Like 3 million viewers an episode? Yeah, it seems like it's gaining popularity the longer we're going on. It's been quite a ride. Five years in, who would ever imagine that uh, we'd be on for so long? But uh, for some crazy reason, people take interest in my family and our shop. Yeah, well, I have to say, I've binge-watched your show, and it's fascinating. There's so much stuff that happens in a pawn store, but what I've learned the most is about negotiation, and particularly, Seth, your style of negotiation. It's like I can now teach my kids how to negotiate because of you. <laughs> so it's so family learning, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's, we deal with a lot of people every day, all walks of life, come through the shop. Um, and ultimately, we're there to provide a service and, you know, survive as a business. And in today's day and age, it's not often easy to do either of those. So uh, we found a niche, and uh, it's proven to be beneficial for everyone. Well, let's describe what that niche is. So the whole area of pawn shop, I, I don't view it as a store. It's almost kind of like uh, it's almost kind of like banking for people who don't have bank accounts. So, like, maybe describe a little bit. What is a pawn shop to you? 
Yeah, so you nailed it right on the head. It's uh, a bank for people that don't have bank accounts. So for you, for a lot of your listeners, if you need $20, all you need to do is go to the ATM, put in your PIN, and you'll retrieve, you'll retrieve $20 or so. Um, my customers often don't have that luxury, so they use their assets as collateral that I loan against. And each state is different as far as the amount of time you have to come back to pick up your merchandise. In Michigan, it's 90 days uh, for the customer to come back at a small interest rate. And, you know, people take advantage of that and get their merchandise back often. Well, okay, let, let, let me understand each step of that. So when you, so, yep. so it's people, I think people view a pawn shop as like, oh, I need 20 bucks. So here's my diamond ring and you're going to get, you're, I'm going to sell it for 20 bucks. But it's not a sale at all. It's, it's, you loan the money. Right, exactly. So we loan against your property. So if someone wants to come in and say they have a TV and they need $100, right? I give them $100. They have three months to come get it back. And if they don't come back in three months, well, the merchandise becomes mine and then I have the right to resell it. So most people think that people leave their stuff with us. So out of 10 people that we give loans to, how many do you think come back to get their stuff? I would say one out of 10. We actually look between 80, 80 to 90% of all merchandise that is loaned upon gets uh, reclaimed. Really? And what, what's usually yeah. the percent loan? Like what, if you were to annualize the, the interest, what would be the, the, the annualized interest? So it's, it's 3% a month, but most of my, ter my term is only three months. So it's short term. Um, so it's 36% a year. But you don't look at, we don't look at it like that. It's only 3% a month for the customer. So, so – just to kind of summarize to everybody, it's a great business. Like, imagine if you're a bank and you're charging essentially triple the rate of an average loan and you're actually holding the collateral. Like, no, they don't hold on to their collateral. You hold on to the collateral. But it's non-recourse. So you don't come back because you don't want to pick up your merchandise. It's not going against your credit score. It's not going to affect the credit score? Not at all. Okay, a lot of these people don't even need a credit score because they're not going to go out no. and like buy a house after they just gave we, you their hundred dollar TV. You'd be you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised of the people that come into the shops get loans with me. We see everybody that doesn't have five dollars to their name to athletes to people that you know just need to bridge a business loan. So I mean, people people are resourceful. So in the summertime, a lot of people will get a loan on their fur coats because they don't want to pay for storage. So if they took a $10 loan out with me, even though their coat could be worth $5,000, all they're paying is $1.50 a month in storage and interest. That's amazing. So, uh, so, so, so in some sense, they're willing to use you essentially as a storage facility, and they get a little money for it up front. I exactly. never thought of it that and way. Yeah, people are resourceful. So, I mean, people often think that pawn shops buy low, sell high. Well, if 80 to 90% of my customers are coming back for their stuff, if I don't loan you money, I'm not going to get that interest back. So it kind of right. flips the whole notion on its head. Right. I did not, I did not think it was that high. Now, but, but also, you have to have a really good sense of what everything is worth. So, so for instance, obviously with jewelry, I'm sure you're an expert. If someone brings it into a diamond ring, you probably instantly know what you could resell that for. But you have to really know every type of collectible and what you could potentially resell it for in those few cases where people don't come back to pick up their merchandise. Yeah, of course. So you have to be on top of the trend, see what 
gold market's doing, what the electronic market's doing, and you price your loan base accordingly. Like if I bring in like a TV that's like five years old, how is that even worth anything at this point? Like, do, are there so buyers for that? Old, yeah, so five years old, I probably wouldn't take it. That's our cutoff. So we might be on the cusp of taking that merchandise. Uh, however, there's always a group of have-nots, and the digital divide is great. So if I had a VCR in stock right now, I probably wouldn't because someone's going to buy it. So that's a hot commodity where people still have a bunch of VCR uh, tapes, and they still are looking for that VCR because they're so hard to find. So there's always a group of people that are looking for old technology. Obviously, I can't loan tremendous amounts on it, but I will always be able to sell it. Um, you know, what about something like a, a fur coat, though? Like, do you know how do you have a sense of like what a fur coat might be worth? If some, let's someone brings in a fur coat that it costs them a thousand dollars, now they want eight hundred dollars for it. What 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 you, what's your usual loan to value on something like that? Meaning, how yeah, much of a so, discount so do you need in order instance. to buy that? Right. So let's take this for instance. So if something's worth about a thousand dollars, if I loan nine hundred dollars against it, I practically just bought it. Right. For a ten percent hit, the customer's probably not going to come back for their merchandise. Right. Makes sense. So if right. I loan two hundred dollars on it, well, the customer's probably going to be upset because I, they are going to feel that. We don't give them enough value. So our sweet spot is probably between 40 to 60% of value because it gives the customer incentive to come back and get their stuff. And if they don't come back and get their stuff, I can still mark it down and collect my interest that the customer would have paid. And, and uh, do you, how often do you use something like eBay to resell stuff? So after 90 days, you own the coat or the TV or the VCR or the diamond ring or whatever. Uh, do you then think about instantly turning it around on eBay? Are there constantly stuff on eBay, or you wait for customers to come in? No. So obviously with the technology and the great advances, I utilize every opportunity I possibly can to move merchandise. So whether it's eBay, Craigslist, um, Amazon, you name it, and I try and outfit the, the resale market value. So so let, let's take that for code as an example again. So they come in and they say, I, have, I bought this for $1,000, and you, and it seems like the typical negotiation is you say, okay, well, uh, you never say, okay, I'll pay $900, or I'll pay $400 for it. You say, what will you sell that for me for? Then they're going to say $900. Then you're going to say, I can't do that. What will you really take for this? I, I notice you never, you never throw out a, a price until at least the third or fourth time <laughs> they mention a number. And so they'll you say, really okay, I could maybe part, you know, sell this for $600. And then you or Les or Ash, somebody will say, uh, I'll pay $75 for this. And then starting <laughs> from there, the negotiation occurs. You'll meet somewhere in the middle. Well, you're, you're right. So ultimately for my customer, it's up to them how much they want to move their merchandise for. So let's, let's not talk about the selling of merchandise, which is often portrayed on the show, because that's not really – I mean, that's part of my business, but I don't buy a lot of merchandise. I give loans on a lot of merchandise. So you right. often hear me ask the customer, do you want to sell it or do you want to get a loan on it, right? And depending on their answers, I go into two different negotiating modes. So you want to get a loan on it? Okay, how much do you need? Because you're going to have to pay me back, right? So I'm not going to give you the first price because you might have a water bill. You might have an electric bill that you need to repay. So if you need $500 for this fur coat that costs 1000 I'll probably give it to you, Right. Um, but if you say $900, well, unfortunately, I understand you might have a water bill or an electric bill that's $900, but that's not how much I can give you. 
So at that point, I find out where they're sent it, whether they want to get the loan, pay it back, and how much their stuff is worth. Because you have to understand, when a customer comes in the store, they're looking for a certain amount of money to pay off something, and I'm looking at the piece of merchandise that they're bringing me in, right? So they have sentimental attachment to it, and I have retail uh, sales value to it. Which well, are they, they have, they have one more thing, which is they brought the merchandise to you. So in some cases, they have this... You know, they might have needed a truck to bring the merchandise to you, or, or they they have this kind of cognitive bias that they're already in your store and they're expecting money. So that kind of is in your favor, right? Because I mean, we're licensed pawn shops, so obviously, here's yes, you're you're right. So it's they're they're bringing the merchandise to me, and if they don't like the price that I give them, well, there's a lot of other pawn shops that people can go to. So it's all a negotiating tactic i mean i guess and then if you're not happy with the price well the door has, is open and closed you you can you can feel free to take your stuff elsewhere i'd rather you not because i'd rather process the loan but you know nothing's holding you to to my shop right so so what's your what's your so okay so you so you say how much do you want for this they say 900 they say i bought it for a thousand i'd like 900 for it and then you and then you say, of course. Well, what would you really uh, take for this? And then they say, go down to six hundred. Then, then how are you feeling them out? Like, what what kind of tells does somebody usually have where you can say, okay, I'll I'll offer you. I can really only offer you seventy five or one hundred fifty or two hundred. Um, you know, it's one of those things that you have to know what the item that's being brought in. You have to know the resale value of it, and you have to know what your bottom dollar is going to be. Um, and what your top dollar is going to be in any negotiation. And the third key to any negotiation is know when to walk away. So I'm, I usually don't give out the first price because I don't, I can't tell you how much my customers need. Um, but at the end, I know that I still have to pay a light bill. I still need to pay my employees, and I need to be able to make a profit on the merchandise. So um, there's a there's a case where if a customer's not happy with their the amount that I give them, I'm sorry, I can't do the transaction for you. Right, but at, at some point you're also kind of feeling out it's not only the lowest price uh, you could pay because of all your expenses, you're also trying to feel out the customer, like what will they take? Uh, like some customers might not go lower than 600 but maybe you'll get a sense that they'll go as low as 200 like they really need the money. Like what do you look for in, an, in just when you kind of physically read, like you almost do a cold read on the customer, what do you look for to say, yeah, uh, oh, okay... I'm going to ask for a little bit less. So, so of course, in any negotiation, you find out what the other person's wanting, right? So, at nine hundred dollars, okay. Well, you paid a thousand for it. Nine hundred dollars is that really the least you can walk away with? If the customer then drops their price to two hundred dollars, I mean, to me, that's that's not a good sign, right? In any <laughs> negotiation, if you drop your price seven hundred seven hundred dollars right off the bat, let me tell you, it's it's like me. Selling a piece of merchandise for a thousand, and then telling the person I'm going to take two hundred, the customer is going to be like, "Wait, what? You were trying to make another, uh, you know, eight hundred dollars on me? Like that's not right." So, I mean, you look for the, how much are they willing to drop, um, and then you you play it from there. You see their demeanor when they drop that price, and you 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 have to be a good read on person. You know, you have to be able to see where your customer is going and knowing their bottom dollar without them actually saying it. Like I'm, I mean, obviously you're an expert because you, it's almost like you've put in your ten thousand hours of negotiation. So, like, how many how many negotiations did you do before you felt like, 
Oh, I'm actually pretty good at this negotiation stuff now. <laughs> a lot. I mean, we probably do a thousand negotiations negotiations every day. Um, every listen, day. All, every day. So people, not me personally, but my shop does. So here's the truth of the matter. A lot of people don't like to negotiate. Like if you talk to your friend and they go into a store and they're not willing to ask for a price break on major department stores, well, guess what? I am. I go in and I'm like, yeah, these uh, jeans might be $75. What, then is there a discount that I can give? Like you can't be bashful. The worst that anybody can say is no. Yeah, right? you know, that's I'm a really good point. Go People are really uncomfortable about asking, particularly like in a major department store, because they figure it's like the rules. Like if that's the number that's on the jeans, then that's the rule. That's what it costs. That's not accurate. Listeners, go out there, go to a department store, ask for a manager, see if you can get a price break. I guarantee most in most circumstances you can get something. Because they always have coupons. There's always coupons out there. Right, and so the manager wants, and so it's just like you. You don't want to go too low because you want to stay in the community and you want people to like you and word of mouth to spread. And at the same time, they don't want to, a major department store doesn't want to lose you as a customer or your friends, so they're willing to make a break. Exactly. Interesting. So, so you, you know, I, when I, whenever I watch the show, you always see these huge lines of people um, into the windows, but you never really, you know, but then the, but then the action happens of course, during the negotiation. What's everybody online for? Are they all selling stuff, or are they all kind of getting their stuff back? No, they're getting loans. They're getting loans, but they're, so they're talking to my tellers. They're talking to our, our loan associates, so they're not talking to me, my sister, or my dad. Um, you know, there's, it's a turn-and-burn business. We deal with a lot of customers every day, so those lines are for customers that are going through the same process that you're watching us kind of go through on camera. When do you get involved? When are you? When are people negotiating with you? Um, usually, the higher end merchandise. Um, when my loan processors can't process the loan because the customer wants too much, and I'm called in to see if we can go give a little bit more of a break or go a little bit higher on merchandise. Um, usually, I'm not the first line of um, loan processing. Uh, usually, it gets brought up the chain, and uh, that's when we'll step in. You know, I, I remember there was one uh, episode uh, where it was a very complicated piece of jewelry. I don't know if you remember. It was uh, this, this drug dealer's son, Maserati Rick Jr., was selling this really complicated, like, jaded diamond thing. And right. uh, I forget what the negotiation turned out to be. But when something's a really complicated, crafted piece of jewelry, how do you possibly analyze what it's worth because obviously you're not going to melt it down and sell it uh how do you analyze what it's worth well you do you break it down as you would if you were going to melt it down and sell it um just because custom pieces are very tricky um when someone invests let's say ten thousand dollars in a custom made piece it might be worth every cent of ten thousand dollars however it's custom so on a resale value that ten thousand dollar piece might not be worth ten thousand dollars because it can be a hard sell for somebody else. So I do break it down as I, if I were to scrap it. So I would break down the diamond size. I'd break down the gold content. I would look at every piece uh, individually and then come up with a collective price. Customs are a different so animal. Do, do, you, do you remember that particular piece, like what, what he was asking for and what you eventually paid? I, I, I kind of forget. I watched like 100 uh, yeah, shows no, in a row. I remember, I remember him being in the shop, and he was dealing with uh, my dad on that transaction. Okay. Um, how did you guys get the TV show going? Like, what happened? 
Yeah, so I'm um, fourth generation in the business. My great-grandfather started a place on Michigan Ave right next to Old Tiger Stadium. My dad came in the business when he was seven years old. My dad and his dad kind of split up. My dad started his own little 2,500-square-foot shop and grew into this 50,000-square-foot uh, facility. And we had an event at the shop that brought out a bunch of people. And I got a call about two months later from a uh, producer saying, hey, I got a great idea for a reality show. And I'm like, what's that? He goes, us follow you around. And I said, no, thanks. And I hung up the phone. And I walked to my dad's office and I go, you wouldn't believe it, but some guy just came in and or called me up and wanted to do a show. And my dad's response, he's kind of a shoot from the hip uh, kind of guy, goes, Dad, let's give it a shot. How big can it possibly get? And so there you have it. You know who runs the shop. And so they started filming. It was the, it was the biggest premiere ever for, for True TV. Uh, were you surprised at the success of the show? Absolutely. You know, when they first came out and said that they were going to film one day of us filming, um, I, I was surprised that they even wanted to do that. And then they picked up two pilots, and then they picked up essentially eight seasons, and we're at 150-something episodes later, and people are still grabbing onto the show, which is so exciting for us. Yeah, I think it's one of the longest-running shows on cable TV. I mean, when maybe one more season and you break records. I mean, we're close to it. I, uh, You know, there's so many elements that the show appeals to. So if you've ever been to a pawn shop, you might find interest in her show. If you ever worked in a family business, you might find interest in the show. If you ever have a sister like mine or a dad like mine or a brother like me, you might draw interest. Or even the casual person that's watching the show and sees a piece of merchandise that's being brought in and thinking that they have something similar, how much is it really worth? Listen, we're not going to give you a praise value on the show. We're going to give you real resale value so people are drawn in to seeing what we're going to do so there's so many levels that the show appeals on that's why i think it has such great longevity well i'll tell you for me it reminds me of shark tank you know it's the same kind of basic principle someone comes in with something and then a team of experts decide what it's worth and what they'll pay or not for it so there's similar principles this negotiation aspect that happens so I almost do it from an educational point of view. So I watch some of the episodes with my kids. A guy would bring in, you know, like Maserati Rick Jr. would bring in his jewelry. I would hit pause, and I would ask my kids, what would you pay for this? And then they get to watch the negotiation after they've come up with a price. So it's actually educational. Well, I appreciate that. That's, that's, I'm glad to hear that. So, so how much of your stuff that is stuck with you, let's say, some, let's say someone... Um, you know, uh, borrows against their, their diamond ring or fur coat, and then 90 days go by, you never hear from them again, and now you own it. How much of that stuff never sells? Yeah, usually, as my dad would say, if someone bought it once, they'll buy it again. Um, something might have a little bit longer shelf life. Um, and oftentimes with electronics, things go bad in them. And so every once in a while, we need to just take a dumpster and throw things out. But usually everything we take in, like, we're able to resell again. That's amazing. Like, what, what's, what surprises you? What, what, which item surprised you that you were able to resell again? Oh, I've had championship rings come in. I've had, you know, um... But, but that I could see reselling again. Like, someone's going to yeah, buy a so championship reselling. ring. So reselling. Like, the other day I sold a Walkman, a tape Walkman. Remember those, like, cassette yeah. tape Walkmans? Yeah, I sold one. Because people How could that even sell? Like an iPod is free now. <laughs> yeah, it's like ten bucks. 
Okay, I guess someone found that. Like maybe they had tapes or something. Exactly. Exactly. And and what's the average time it takes that you hold something? Like how fast you? I mean, obviously you try to sell it the next day once you own it. But on average, how long does it take to sell something? That's not the case. So we we have a state law of 90 days, but I'm not sitting back there on day 91 pulling anything because I want that customer to be able to get their stuff back and then re, re-pawn it, right? Because once someone doesn't come back with their stuff, well, guess what? They're not bringing it back to me for a loan again. So you have to really want to lose your merchandise for us to put it on the showroom floor. So um, things can sit there. On day 90, 90 I'm not pulling it today uh, 180. I give people ample amount of time, and then once it hits the showroom floor, I usually have a customer for it. So people scour the showroom floor, I have a TV, someone's looking for a different TV, and then I go get it. So it's really not this business where I'm sitting back there on day 91 looking for merchandise. Because you really are, I mean, part of the success of a pawn shop is you really are the bank of the community. Like, these people don't, don't even have checking accounts in many cases, many of your customers. Exactly. Exactly. So, so do you find how many like how, what's what's like a, a a typical repeat customer? Like, how many times have they come in and and borrowed from you? Oh, fifty times a year. Wow. So basically, do you do um um do you do payday loans as well? No, no payday loans, no check cashing, just straight pawn. And and what's the what's the kind of regulation aspects? Like, do you have a cap on your interest rates, or how how are are you nervous about regulators? Yeah, of course. I mean, we're, I mean, with the CFPB coming down on payday loans, it's something that we're keeping an eye on. Uh, however, in Michigan, we're regulated by the state, and we're at 3% uh, a month, which is the lowest in the country. Um, so we're satisfied with where we're at. My customer base doesn't seem to mind, because if you think about it, it's short-term, small-dollar amount. So an average loan could be between 80 and and $100, so it's $3 every month. So it's not outrageous. But it's such a great business because it's really hard for you to lose money. Like, what's an example where you've lost money? When I paid for the name brand, meaning someone came in with a designer pair of earrings um, from a major uh, retailer, and I looked at the box and I overpaid because retail jewelry tends to have a high markup. And when you break it down for what it actually is, it's not worth very much. So there's been times when I first started in the business that I got excited when someone came in with a pair of earrings from a, a company that had a blue box, and I really overpaid for those tremendously. It, I'm surprised, actually, because so so my um, I have a business partner whose, whose family is also like third or fourth generation pawn shop, and... Uh, don't tell my wife this. Maybe she won't be listening to this podcast. But I buy all her jewelry from my business partner's pawn shop, and they would never pay for anything in a Tiffany's box. Yeah, I know. I, I get like one fifth the price of Tiffany's. Way. Yeah, because that's a lesson I learned at the beginning of my career at the pawn shop was you can't pay for the name, period, ever, and. You know, it took me a couple burns to realize that because the resale value on that stuff is not uh, not quite where you would expect it to be. Even if you put it on eBay in the blue box? Well, the thing with eBay is there's so many counterfeits out there that, I mean, it kind of brings the whole value down. So even though yours might be real and authentic, uh, you know, you, you go, go search and see how many other variations there are that you can't uh, prove 100% whether or not uh, it's indeed accurate. That's the problem. 
And so, so obviously in your business and in the area and everything, you're in Detroit. You're kind of in a violent part of Detroit. Like, how often, like, what's the most violent things have gotten? <laughs> you know, it hasn't been too bad. I mean, for sure. It hasn't been too bad. Yeah, because you've got these huge bouncers, and I'm sure you have a room full of guns that people have hocked as no, well. No, it's not, it's not that. Here's the deal. Most of my, my transactions are seamless. People come in knowing the amount that they want. I'm able to help them, and they're out the door. On the off chance that I can't come up with a price that the customer wants, obviously that customer gets emotional because they have nowhere else to go. That's why they're at the pawn shop. I take that into account, but when there's no business being transacted, it's time for them to go. But what about, like, at night? Like, does anyone try to rob the store? No, you know, people try to do all types of crazy things, but it's gated, property, fully secure. I have cameras everywhere. Um, yeah, no no real big issues. Oh, that's great. Um, so once the, once the show started being successful, how did that affect your personal life? Yeah, you know, I'm out there. It's actually done quite well for the industry. I was uh, voted uh, Palm Broker of the Year back in 2013. Um, and it was throughout the nation. And, you know, for me personally, I'm, I'm kind of excited because now it's cool to go to the pawn shop, right? So you just mentioned to me that you bought all your wife's stuff at a pawn shop. Before the success of our show and shows like ours, a lot of people wouldn't tell people that they go to the pawn shop. It's kind of like this underground, I'd like to save money. There's kind a thing, stigma to now, it. Notice I, no, notice I said I hope she doesn't listen to this. Like, there is a stigma yeah, to exactly, it. Yeah, exactly, right? But, but now people are like, hey, I bought a lawnmower at a pawn shop and I saved some money. Isn't that cool? You know? So, I mean, it's cool to go to the pawn shop now. How, that, that, to me, is the best part of this show experience, that I've been able to bring a positive light to pawn shops, and pawn brokers across the country are getting new people in because they just want to see what it's about. And what about your personal life, like, in your real personal life? Like, you know, meeting, meeting a significant other and so on. Like, does everybody recognize you in the street? Like, do you score? Yeah, absolutely. It's been, yeah, it's been amazing. I've had a great experience, and that's what it comes down to. The show's great. I've been able to have some crazy experiences. I've been able to do some great things, go to concerts, go backstage, meet some really interesting people. Um, you know, I, I, look, I look at it. We all are on, with the understanding that the show's not going to last forever, but while we're doing it, let's have fun with it. So that's what we're doing. And, you know, you've expanded a little bit while while the show's going on. Do you see further expansions? Or do you ever see selling the business? Like, there are a couple of public companies that um, are in the pawn shop business that, that kind of buy uh, uh, companies like yours. Yeah, you know, I, I've never thought about selling. I know a couple of my friends in the industry that have. That's not something that I'm really wanting to do at the present moment. Um, obviously, we have a pretty strong, significant brand across the country, so expansion under the umbrella of American Joint Loan is definitely in the future. I mean, you could go public and buy the smaller companies. Yeah, you know, but it's just more overhead, too. So, yes, there's an opportunity out there for me to do that, and also franchising. There's a bunch of different things that I'm looking at, but... When it comes down to it, we're a mom-and-pop shop. We like doing what we're doing and getting too big. Oftentimes, you can't serve the customers in their best uh, interest. So we have to really identify the best opportunities for us as a business and as a family. And so, so okay, if a, a thousand loans and negotiations a day occur in your store, what's the craziest negotiation you've had to do personally? As far as money goes, like one of the highest items. Or, that, or, or uh, like if somebody wants to show sell you, like I saw somebody selling like a moose's head or just some weird crap that someone has that they're trying to sell. Well, 
Okay, so in one of the episodes, a guy came in with a beard butt that was kind of made into a face. And it's on our website, pondetroit.com. You can check it out. So he comes in, he's like, this is a Himalayan snipe. I'm like, what the heck is that? It had, like, fangs on it. It was really ridiculous. And I was like, I'd never heard of this before. He goes, no, it's real, it's real. And I was like, it's real what? And then he turns it around, and it's the, the beard on this thing was actually the deer's tail. So you have to check it out. It's unbelievable. It's on the website. So it was cool. And did you I buy, had to buy it? I did, I did. I had to buy it because it was so unique, and I paid, I think, like 200 bucks for it. So it's for sale right now. I see. So nobody's bought it yet. <laughs> no, I was the only sucker to buy it so far. So well, what did he ask for it? To check it out. I think he wanted like 500 bucks. And then he sold it for two hundred. He had some other stuff with it. That's crazy. So, so, okay. So, so again, what are like the what's the classic negotiation? Like, just walk us through how you look at a negotiation from beginning to end. Yeah. So you have to understand what your customer wants, right? So the first thing I'm going to ask is, do you want to get a loan on it or do you want to sell it, right? I have to understand what the person is bringing in. I need to know the resale value of it. Right, So no matter what story I'm being told, it's not emotional for me. I'm looking at the pure business aspect. And number three, if I can't realize a price with that customer, I have to walk away. So not every deal is going to be good for me. Not every deal is going to be good for the customer. And if it's, not, if it's too unfair either side, well, guess what? Negotiation broke down. So number one, don't be afraid to negotiate. Walk into your nearest department store, ask the manager for a better price. Know your bottom dollar and learn and know when to walk away. Three easy tactics. Yeah, and then you, it really does seem too. You have to kind of have a sense of how low you'll get a sense from their body language how low they'll go. Well, you can hear that right off the bat. So if they're astronomical and then they drop the price a lot, as I mentioned before, you know the direction that this negotiation is going to go. If they're going in small increments um, down, okay, well now you're negotiating. So. Um, you have to really find out if the person's negotiating. Because if someone comes in and says they bought something for a thousand dollars, they want nine hundred, and you say, "What's the least you're going to take?" and they say nine hundred again, well, guess what? This negotiation can be a little tough, and ultimately, it's probably not going to be a successful negotiation for anybody. Right, but if they say like seven hundred right after they said nine hundred, then you know they're negotiating. Exactly. Now you know and then you're you and then I notice you guys tend to throw out a price that's like almost ridiculously low. Uh, like someone will say seven hundred, and then you might say, oh, "I can't go above a hundred on this." I I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. It all depends on what it is too. So um, if it's some gold, and I know the gold market's up, I can go a little bit more than that hundred dollars. So it all depends on what the item is, how unique it is, and whether I think it has resale value. And then it's sort of classic, like you, you end up sort of meeting in the middle somewhere. Like he goes down, you go up, and then somebody pretends to walk away a little bit, and then finally you meet in the middle. <laughs> you know what? The deal's never done until the customer drives out of the parking lot. Right. So That's it. There's, That's there's always an opportunity there. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Seth. This was really, this was really interesting. A good lesson on, on the pawn shop business. You know, here's one question I have, one, one last question. It seems like a good business to get into is lending to pawn shops because like let's say you're it seems like your main barrier to growing the business in some cases might be how much cash you have on hand to buy or lend on merchandise now you can get a line from the bank but the bank is going to be weird about 
lending to a pawn shop because it's such a different type of loan for them. So it seems like being in the pawn shop lending business, like lending to pawn shops, might be a, a decent business opportunity. Uh, there is no question about that. That's something I'm exploring right now as well, just because, you know, banks have really gotten stringent on the requirements and regulators out there. So oftentimes you're grouped into the payday advances, and you're not, we're not payday advances, but people often put us under the umbrella. So we're not treated as such. We're treated as a financial institution. Um, but you're right, that's a very lucrative part of uh, something uh, that's coming up in the near future. Like someone could, someone could basically say, uh, I'll give you a line of a million, I'll take two points on that, and uh, the interest rate of whatever you draw down is 8%, which is, you know, six points higher than T-bills. That, that exactly. seems like a decent way to money. approach that business. And everybody's making money. Yep. Yeah, exactly. every, everybody's making money because you'll make money because you're charging like uh, a 40% annualized rate and they'll make money because they, they could borrow at 3% and lend at 8% and and plus they get the two points up front uh, and it, se it seems reasonable. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's talk after the show. <laughs> All right, well, Seth, thanks so much and uh, yeah. congratulations on the success of this great show. Uh, I really enjoyed watching it. Like I said, I really think people should take their kids to watch it because it's a good lesson on, on negotiation and it's a good lesson on a whole segment of the economy that I think people don't really realize exists. Uh, right, I mean, exactly. I think that sector of the economy is only going to get bigger as banks get more and more nervous. Uh, I agree with you completely, and I appreciate it every, night, every Wednesday night at uh, 10 o'clock on True TV, Hardcore Palm. Okay, and also HardcorePalm.com. What's your, what's your website? Yeah, pawndetroit.com, P-A-W-N, Detroit.com. Uh, you can keep up with us and the latest deals at the pawn shop all the time. Great. All right. Thanks a lot, Seth. Seth Gold from Hardcore Pawn. Thanks again. Coming to the James Altucher Show. Bye. Thank you. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary.